My topic for this evening is the Fifth Commandment, Part 2. Last time I talked about uh, abortion, I talked about the death penalty, I talked about um, just war, briefly, talked about intentional homicide, and um, tonight I intend to discuss euthanasia and... Um, suicide. Um, And allow me to take the theologically simpler uh, but uh, emotionally more complex topic first. Suicide. As we discussed last time, we know that our life is a gift. And it is not our own. It is a gift from God and therefore not something we can or should squander or throw away or or treat casually. We are stewards, not owners of our life. This is actually true of everything we own. We are stewards, not real owners in a sense. Everything that we have belongs to God infinitely more than it belongs to us. And so we have to use it and treat it with care and respect. First among all his gifts is our life. Suicide is gravely evil because it rejects God's greatest gift to us. It is a disordering or an undoing of the natural order of our soul. The first good that living beings naturally pursue is the continuation of their life. Suicide reverses that. It is, in this sense, gravely contrary to the natural law. It is gravely contrary to justice. We owe to ourselves the protection of our lives. We owe to God the protection of our lives. The emotional pain of suicide reveals to us the injustice that suicide perpetrates against our friends and relatives and family. It is, I think it'd be difficult to find anything more explicitly contrary to the natural law than suicide. For this reason, if someone commits suicide freely and with a clear understanding of what it is, they've committed, among the worst, mortal sins. Dante, in his Inferno, put them deep in hell. Not dogma, but part of the culture of our faith, worth understanding. If suicide is committed with the intention of leading others to value life less, the gravity is intensified even further. Perhaps some of you have heard of the TV series, the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. It was a big deal in high schools a couple of years ago. Um, It's about a suicide and a, someone who committed suicide and 
left 13 recordings of her speaking, giving reasons why she committed suicide. As with all sin, suicide is irrational. Remember that. If you are ever counseling someone or, or en- engaged with someone who is considering suicide or who is a suicide survivor, meaning a loved one of someone who has committed suicide, suicide is always irrational. There are no reasons for it that justify it. This is one of the reasons why child psychologists condemned the series, 13 Reasons Why. Even if the series did a good job of showing the damage done to the community by this teenager's suicide, because it entertained all these reasons and and spent many episodes exploring who was guilty, who had some part in, in the destruction of the psyche of this young woman, it invited people to entertain thoughts of their own suicide in ways that were deeply destructive. It, it invited people to think about suicide as if it was rational, as if there might be reasons for it, as if you might be able to, if you were considering suicide, you might be able to put the blame on someone else rather than accept that something is wrong in your own mind. So if ever it comes up, if ever anyone asks for an endorsement, don't give it. Even if you find the show intriguing or engaging, it is not worth watching. The question that I always get in grade school, though, that I have intentionally not yet answered, is, does someone go to hell if they commit suicide? The Catechism says that grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. Well, that sounds like the circumstances that might lead someone to commit suicide. My grandfather was an OBGYN, and as such, he was involved in the lives of his patients. They trusted him profoundly. They relied on him to give them good counsel, not only medically, but about their lives. And he had one patient in his 50-plus years of practice whose husband committed suicide. And she asked him to come and help her make sense of it to her children. He had never seriously grappled with this problem before, but he prayed about it as he drove over to her home. And I think he he struck upon something, an analogy that is really helpful for survivors. Medically speaking, one of the deadliest killers in our nation is a heart attack. When the heart fails, something medically goes wrong. We can point clearly to what went wrong. An artery is obstructed, 
the heart has an arrhythmia and stops, stops beating. Something clearly goes wrong, and we can point to it. We can see it. And we know that it's not a moral thing. When a person commits suicide, it might be very helpful for being compassionate toward them, for maintaining our hope and our confidence in God, to think of suicide as a head attack. Something has gone wrong. We can't point to it so clearly or precisely as in the case of a heart attack. We don't understand the brain so well. And furthermore, the brain is intricately connected to the mind. And so we cannot, it's not easy to parse out culpability or, or cause in disorders of the mind. Any psychologist or psychiatrist will tell you the, the mix between a chemical problem and an experiential developmental problem is very difficult to parse. It's very difficult to sort out what's caused by which of those two factors. For this reason, a head attack should not be understood, describing a suicide as a head attack, should not be understood as a dismissal of the possibility of culpability. Because it is possible that a person is sufficiently free and aware to commit a mortal sin by attempting their own suicide. That's possible. But for survivors, it's important to have an explanation of how they might not be culpable. Furthermore, I've told this story in the parishes before. I don't remember where precisely or in what context. I don't think I've used it here. But we do not know, we cannot know what goes through a person's heart and mind in the final moments before their death. There's a woman who traveled a long distance to visit, to see Padre Pio and to go to confession with him. He, if you are not aware, he had the gift of reading souls. He could know a person's sins and a person's conscience before they said a word to him. This is a supernatural gift, a charismatic gift. He did not desire it, nor should we, but he used it for good. This woman stood in line for multiple days, and the time that she had allotted for this trip was coming to an end, and it appeared that she was not going to be able to speak to Padre Pio. The line had been too long. And it was reported that he came out of the confessional and shouted to her, your husband had time to repent between the moment he jumped off the bridge and the moment he hit the water. We do not know 
what goes through a person's heart and mind in the moment between the decision to commit suicide and the, the moment they actually die. And so we can and should hope for their repentance and conversion and forgiveness, God's forgiveness. It was once the case that the church would refuse to have a funeral mass for someone who committed suicide. This is not the law anymore. This does have to be handled very delicately because we cannot give the impression of celebrating a person's suicide. But it is not something that we default to despair about. We should not despair. Any questions about suicide? And I may not have this correctly the right format. Sure. Last night you talked about, we had a question for you about bad things happening to good people. Yes. A little bit. Brian, I think what you're asking about is the problem of evil and how we make sense of the fact that bad things do happen to good people. I think what I said last night is that the church offers two answers to the problem of evil. The first is the answer given in Job. In the book of Job, God's answer is ultimately, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to understand why I allow evil to occur. God goes through a long litany of questions. Were you there when I created the heavens? Were you there when I established the earth upon its foundations? Were you there when I created Leviathan? And so on and so on and so on. Implying, how dare you question me? I am God. You owe me everything. Now, I think this is an intellectually robust answer, but it is not a very satisfying answer when we are suffering. And I think, therefore, we should give thanks to God that he has given us the more complete answer in Christ. Christ embraced our suffering and died for us. He made suffering, the, the meaning and purpose of suffering, known. He redeemed us through suffering that he voluntarily accepted. And in doing so, not only did he free us from death and from sin, he gave us the means to freely accept suffering and unite our heart to his on the cross and so make our suffering no matter how small, a participation in his redemptive act. Even more consoling, in dying for us, in embracing suffering for us, he manifested that he is present to us, with us, in our suffering. And I guess the connection between that and suicide would be that if ever 
we encounter someone who is considering suicide, of course, refer them to mental health professionals. If they intend, if they have a plan, if they tell, tell you of a plan, if they threaten, I'm going to do it tonight, call 911 and have the police go and check on them. I say that for two reasons. First and foremost, the police actually have the authority to do something about it with coercive force, if that's necessary. But number two, none of us has the power to coerce another person's will. And so we have to respect their freedom and keep our distance in a certain sense, even when they've threatened suicide. So practically, that should be the first thing. Refer them to the person they need, or the person who can give them the help they need. But spiritually, the counsel that we should offer them is that suffering is not without meaning. And we do not have to suffer alone. Our suffering can be united to Christ's on the cross, and it can, or it is, carried with him. He is always present to us in our suffering. Any other questions about suicide before I move on to euthanasia? I could make a joke about youth in Asia, but I won't. <laughs> euthanasia, as you know, is something of a misnomer. Thanatos is the Greek word for death, you meaning good, euthanasia meaning good death. That's what's sought by euthanasia, comfort in death. But it is a misnomer because euthanasia, morally speaking, is voluntarily taking the life of someone who is suffering, perhaps someone who is dying, but it is nonetheless voluntarily taking the life of an innocent person, willfully. There's nothing good about that. Our culture is so messed up around these questions. Because on the one hand, we have the American Disabilities Act, which admirably makes possible easy access for people who are in a wheelchair, who are blind, deaf, who have all kinds of disabilities that a hundred years ago might have kept them out of large parts of society. Our, our society does recognize that that is a problem, and we have the American Disabilities Act to try to overcome such exclusion due to physical handicaps. But on the other hand, we're so afraid of suffering that our culture is tending in a direction, is already well down the road, to allowing death to be used to escape suffering. I worked with a, someone in my last parish who wanted to die because she was dying. 
How does that make sense? Because I'm afraid of the fact that I'm going to die, I want to accelerate what I'm afraid of. Like with suicide, there's nothing rational about it. This is the case with all sin. Remember, sin is always irrational. In the face of suffering, whether chronic illness or terminal illness, our task as Christians should be to uphold the dignity of those who are suffering and to help them find meaning in it. Direct euthanasia is absolutely and always intrinsically evil, morally unacceptable. The reason I said at the outset of my comments tonight that this topic is, ethically speaking, more complex is that euthanasia can be either an act or an omission. And working through that is ethically difficult. Obviously, the, the act of euthanasia is exemplified by Dr. Kevorkian, who gives an injection that a person cannot administer to themselves, and so he administered it to them. They wanted it, he says, and so he allowed them to die. That's his language. Actually, he killed them, his quote-unquote patients. That's the act of euthanasia. But we can also commit euthanasia by omission, by failing to provide ordinary care for someone who is dying, for someone who is suffering. The distinction between ordinary means of care and extraordinary means of care is only briefly touched on in the Catechism. So if you'd allow me to, I'd like to go into a little more depth than the Catechism offers. I think I may have mentioned in previous talks the ethical and religious directives that are binding on Catholic hospitals. They're published by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They're grounded in um, magisterial teaching, uh, whether that be from the popes themselves, from the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, from various sources, uh, from the Second Vatican Council. These ethical and religious directives go through very specific, concrete questions, ethical questions that hospitals will face. If you are interested in them, you can find them all online. Just search for ethical and religious directives. There are several that apply to ordinary and extraordinary means of care. If you've ever worked in a Catholic hospital, Hopefully, you've encountered these. I'd like to read to you. These are a little long, but they're technical. They're very precise. I'd like to read to you four 
of these directives. Before I do, I'd like to give just a very brief description of the difference between extraordinary and ordinary means of care. I'll give a little bit more precise definition in a moment. But ordinary means of care are commonly used medical treatments that have a reasonable expectation of success and offer a benefit that is clearly proportional to the potential difficulty that might come along with using them. So in the case of a bacterial infection, a very obvious example of ordinary means of care would be antibiotics. Can there be side effects that are detrimental? Sure. Are they generally effective? Yes, generally very effective. If the disease might kill you, a if some bacterial infection might kill you, is taking antibiotics and the risk of the potential side effect proportionate to the end you hope to achieve? Absolutely. Therefore, morally speaking, taking antibiotics is morally obligatory for a Catholic. Now, if there are other equally effective means of care, you're welcome to use those. You're not obliged to use a particular means of care as if it were the only means of care. But you are obliged, to, morally speaking, to seek treatment through ordinary means. You cannot rule them out just because you want to die. That's an example of euthanasia by, uh, by omission. Extraordinary means of care are treatments that are not commonly used in a particular set of circumstances or that have a disproportionate burden to the hope of successful treatment that they offer. With those definitions in mind, allow me to read what the USCCB says. These are, if you care to research them later, ERD 32, 33, 56, and 57. 32. While every person is obliged to use ordinary means to preserve his or her health, no one should be obliged to submit to a health care procedure that the person has judged with a free and informed conscience not to provide a reasonable hope of benefit without imposing excessive risks and burdens on the patient or excessive expense to family or community. One point there that is um, easily missed in the COVID debates is that this is a procedure that the person, the patient, has judged. 33. The well-being of the whole person must be taken into account in deciding about any therapeutic intervention or use of technology. Therapeutic procedures that are likely to cause harm or undesirably, undesirable side effects can be justified only by a proportionate benefit to the patient. An example of what this ERD is talking about would be amputation. Amputation of a, of a limb 
is going to, or part of a limb, is going to have a profound effect on the life of the patient into the future. The patient himself needs to judge, yes, the good that I'm hoping to achieve by this amputation is proportionate to the, the harm that I am under, undergoing. In the case of a patient being unconscious, unconscious, the caretaker or the person responsible for the person makes the best decision that they are able. But all other things being equal, if the person is conscious, it is the patient's decision to make. 56. A person has a moral obligation to use ordinary or proportionate means of preserving his or her life. Proportionate means are those that, in the judgment of the patient, the church is very emphatic about that, offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. And 57, a person may forego extraordinary or disproportionate means of preserving life. Disproportionate means are those that in the patient's judgment do not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. And last, Ethical and Religious Directive 59, the free and informed judgment made by a competent adult patient concerning use or withdrawal of life-sustaining procedures should always be respected and normally complied with unless it is contrary to Catholic teaching. So in short, sorry, I have a table that I wanted to go through that I cannot find. Ordinary means of care are morally obligatory. Extraordinary means of care are things that you can pursue but are not morally obliged to pursue. Ordinary means of care need to be understood carefully because they are not necessarily the same in a, from a medical perspective and from an ethical perspective. A medical perspective just looks at what is the standard of care. What do medical textbooks encourage or recommend as the treatment? What, do, what, does this, what does that field of specialists accept as standard care? That's ordinary on a medical level. It's scientifically established. It's statistically successful, reasonably available. If all of those are met, then it's standard. Ethically speaking, we take into view the whole person, not just the particular disease. And so, ethically, 
we should hope for a beneficial result. If a person is in their 90s and in declining health before they get, before they fall and break their hip, and having surgery to put pins in their hip will cause more pain than, than, than they already have, is that treatment going to prolong their life meaningfully? Is it going to have any reasonable hope of restoring them to health and, 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 uh, and restoring them to their previous way of life? I think the answer to those questions is no. And so even if medically it might be easy, it might be successful at, at allowing the bones to heal, because of the holistic view, and maybe this isn't a great example of the difference because I think medically no doctor would recommend putting pins in a 90-year-old's hips. <laughs> what? Hip replacements are done on people in their 90s, and hip fractures are commonly done on people in their 90s. Ah, okay. Depending on their overall health. Sure, okay. Absolutely. You know, so is that, you know, that would be extraordinary. But because of the whole. Uh, be, and, and then what about even feeding for someone? Okay, so now because they can't take any food or nutrition or fluids without immediately getting pneumonia, do you too feed them? Or is it okay to not, to, to say the family's under even says, look, we don't want to prolong their agony. Excellent question. Allow me to come back to that one, because that's what I want to finish with. Um, food and water is a different question. The, the church treats food and water as not a treatment. So I'll come back to that. Um, but your examples are good ones, and this is why I'm spending a little more time with it. This is one of the pastoral questions that I've actually counseled a fair number of people about, because these questions do come up for many, many people at the end of life or at the end of their parents' lives. These questions are, are very real, very live questions for us. So ethically speaking, ordinary means of care, you have a hope of a beneficial result. It would fall within the standard of care, medically speaking, so it's, it's commonly used. It is available to you within reason according to your social position. If you have the means to pay for something extraordinarily expensive for someone in middle class, that might be ordinary for someone who has the means to pay for it. But for most of us, because it would bankrupt us, it would not be considered ordinary means of care. 
It has to be not too difficult to obtain, easy to use, not unreasonably burdensome to the patient. That speaks to some of the examples you've just given. Although, because of the widespread use and availability of um, anesthesia and other forms of pain control, pain becomes less of a factor in evaluating whether something is ethically uh, ordinary means of care, because we can manage the pain itself. With respect then to nourishment, food and hydration, the church is very clear that we can never withhold food and hydration if that will cause the person to die by starvation or dehydration, period. What we can do in some of the cases that you may have in mind, and tell me your name, Dan, in some of the cases that you may have in mind, what we can do is say that we do not have the means to provide food and hydration without causing all kinds of other problems, and the person is dying anyways. Food and hydration will not prolong their, their life. It will merely extend their death. Then we can say, no. But in that case, they're not starving to death. They're not dehydrating to death. They're dying because they're dying of other causes. And we are not unnecessarily, with, while causing other undesirable effects, we are not forcing hydration and nutrition upon them. But the church is, is very clear. Um, let me see if I can find the ethical and re religious directive on it. In principle, there is an obligation to provide patients with food and water, including medically assisted nutrition and hydration for those who cannot take food orally. This obligation extends to patients in chronic and presumably irreversible conditions who can reasonably be expected to live indefinitely if given such care such as a persistent vegetative state. Medically assisted nutrition and hydration become morally optional when they cannot reasonably be expected to prolong life or when they would become excessively burdensome for the patient or cause significant physical discomfort. For example, resulting from complications in the use of the means employed. This is ERD 58 if you feel a need to look it up further. The USCCB goes on, for instance, as a patient draws close to inevitable death from an un underlying progressive and fatal condition, certain measures to provide nutrition and hydration may become excessively burdensome and therefore not obligatory in light of their very limited ability to prolong life or provide comfort. I can give an example from my own recent history I have a dear friend who died a few years ago of a massive stroke. He was in the hospital, unconscious after this stroke, and because he was dying of the stroke, the medical staff was not obligated to 
introduce nutrition and hydration either through a feeding tube or uh, directly into the abdomen. I'm, I'm probably getting the terms wrong, but uh, this was not obligatory because the stroke was already killing him. Now, if the stroke had been so mild that there was a reasonable hope of his recovery, then, he, then we would have been obliged to introduce uh, nutrition and hydration. It cannot ever be the reason that someone dies. But if they are dying anyways, and there is no, there's no reasonable hope that it would extend their life, but only prolong their death, and have this undue discomfort, undue burden, then it is permitted to forego nutrition and hydration. Go ahead, Dan. Yes. Yes. They're going to starve to death. I think. I think what the church would say is, as long as that is analogous to a persistent vegetative state. And I think, I think when, I, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm, I'm not certain on this question. This is, a, this is a question that you might want to ask a professional ethicist about. Um, but what I would say is, until it's clear that the person is dying and that it will not meaningfully prolong their life, you should provide them nutrition and hydration. Now, I don't know how Alzheimer's progresses. If, if a feeding tube would not be needed to nourish them until they are very clearly near the end, then I think you could omit it. I'd say that the safest route to go is you provide the nutrition and hydration until they reach a point where they are dying whether they have it or not. Clearly dying. And, um, and, and you avoid having them die because they've been de deprived of food or water. Correct. M morally, that is the safest route to go. If you choose to go in that direction and something like pneumonia arises because they've got the feeding tube in, well, then you might say, okay, they're dying. This feeding tube is the cause of it, and we're going to stop care because this will come back. So you, you, you can... 
I think if you start with that default, I am not going to let them die because of starvation or dehydration. From there, you can make the choice as that unfolds. This is not going to help them in any meaningful way. I'm going to let them die. Does that make sense? But that's, that's where I would start. I think what I would say is talk to a priest. You could talk to me if you wanted when you come face to face with the circumstances. If it is something somewhat like a persistent vegetative state, you got to tube feed them, even if that's contrary to their, their directive. You, you cannot starve them or dehydrate them to death, even if they told you to. Just like you cannot euthanize someone, even if they're asking you to because that's essentially what you'd be doing if you starved or dehydrated them to death. You'd do it by omission. Um, does that at least give you somewhat of a, somewhat of a firm starting place? Um, I had one more example that I wanted to give, and then, Ginny, I'll take your question. My uncle uh, died of pancreatic cancer several years ago. Um, he... He was dying for years. He, he was one of the most successful pancreatic uh, cancer patients I've heard of. He survived, I think, four years or five years after his initial diagnosis. But he, um, he was very clearly near the end. And my sister, who was close to him, was getting married. He got pneumonia. And because he was already dying, it would have been perfectly legitimate for him to omit taking antibiotics in that case. It wouldn't, taking antibiotics and conquering the, the pneumonia would not meaningfully prolong his life. It, it would have no hope of restoring him to health. It would essentially extend his death. He was not obliged to do so. But because my sister's wedding and his daughter's, my sister's close friend, birthday was just a few days away. He chose to take the treatment to extend his death so that they could wait to grieve until after they had celebrated. That is perfectly acceptable, but it would be considered extraordinary means of care, not morally obligatory, voluntary. One can do that, but one is not obliged to do that. That makes sense? Likewise, one can do that with many kinds of medical treatment, including those not approved by uh, American, uh, appro the FDA and other approval authorities. If one has the means to use them and one has reasonable hope of success and can afford them and is willing to take the risk, morally speaking, there's no problem with it. It is related to that, yes. Any other questions? Last week, and, or two weeks ago and today, were 
heavy topics. Ginny, yes. Probably not. Um, so for those who didn't hear the question, Ginny asked about a woman she knew years ago who was 88, who was diagnosed with a severe terminal illness, and uh, the doctor prescribed her a certain regimen, and she said, that's too much. I don't want to do it. I'm 88 years old. Did she sin in doing that? I think probably she did not, uh, because... And you said that she ended up living until 91 anyways. Most people don't live much longer than that anyways. And we are not expected, obliged, to prolong life at any cost. And, and so if, if there is not a reasonable expectation that, that the treatment would extend our life meaningfully, or that it would or if there is an, an expectation that it would impose a great burden on us, and, and therefore the, the, the burden would be disproportionate to the hoped-for result. No, there's no moral problem with that. <laughs> Any other questions? Ah, did I not talk about scandal at all last time? Well, I don't have notes on that, but I can certainly talk about it. (laughs) No, I think you're right. I think I did not. So allow me to touch on scandal very briefly. Morally speaking, scandal is not what we think of when we hear the word scandal. When we hear the word scandal, we think of something shocking, something jarring. We think of the TV show, Scandal, which was all about headlines that would scandalize people, that would shock them, that would get their attention. The two, are, the two concepts are related, but they're not the same. What we think of socially as scandal might be morally scandalous, but it might not be. Um, it might be scandalous for, um, in, in the social setting for a priest to have dinner with a woman, just the two of them. That might be shocking. And I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> but would it be scandalous in the moral sense? Scandal in the moral sense is leading people into sin giving approval by your example or by the things you say to sinful behavior. And a priest having dinner with a young woman privately might not 
be encouraging or approving anything sinful. Having dinner is not sinful. Where it's scandalous is it might lead people to ask all kinds of questions that really, frankly, they shouldn't ask. None of their business. Where it might be ethically scandalous is if it is actually a manifestation of the fact that they're falling in love and he is violating his promise of celibacy. If that's the case, then, then, then it is the failure to fulfill his celibacy that is scandalous. Our sinful behavior is almost always scandalous if it is known by others and approved of, either by our subsequent behavior or by people in authority. This is the reason why attending uh, morally questionable weddings is difficult. Because by our presence, we are giving a kind of approval to it. By our celebration of someone's wedding, we are giving a kind of approval to it. We do harm to other souls when we give moral approval to sin. We do harm to the, the soul of the person committing the sin. We do harm to the souls of those who witness our approval. Perhaps we'll have occasion to talk further about particular cases. But the essential definition of scandal is giving approval to sinful behavior by your word or by your action. Any questions on scandal? Yes. <laughs> it, it, so, yes, I think that's right, Steve. Pro-choice politicians, at least, uh, who are very vocal about their pro-choice position, are committing, Catholic pro-choice politicians, are committing the sin of scandal. Because even if they think they have good reasons for approving of the choice, or they think that they ought not give their opinion or impose it on anyone else, they are implicitly approving of the act of abortion uh, by that act. And, and so they, they make it more socially acceptable to commit the sin. Yeah, that's a very good question. Good example. Any other questions? Ah, good question. How do you tell the difference between giving approval and judging others by not giving approval? Uh, I think this is a... This speaks to a serious misconception in moral theology today. Uh, We have the impression that Christ's command that we not judge means that we should have empty minds when it comes to morality. That's just not true. We have an obligation to judge acts. What Christ is exhorting is that we not judge persons. So the way to to make that distinction in your own mind is do not participate, do not approve of, do not celebrate something that is sinful. But when you think about the person, make excuses in your own mind for why they might 
not know any better. They might feel compelled. They, they might, it might be the best they can do. So you make excuses for the person, and you readily forgive their sin, but you very clearly judge the act. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Um, there are some are better than others <laughs> um, if I had a serious ethical question um, I would probably call the archdiocese um, I happen to know personally our, ethic, our ethicist and so I might just call him directly but if you don't know him personally I would call the archdiocese um, but honestly first I'd start with your parish priest and ask your parish priest to find the answer if he didn't know the answer. Um, I've only encountered in my five and a half years as a priest maybe two questions that I didn't know the answer or couldn't look up the answer to myself. Um, Because thankfully the church does a pretty good job of trying to give answers magisterially to lots of these questions. Any other questions? Dan, I'm sure you've got a bunch more, but (laughs) maybe after. All right. Let's together honor Our Lady as we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen.